Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. This is a little podcast that I've been putting together over, over the last while where I like to talk about all things investing, where I get to share with you some of my thoughts, some of my takes, and other people's takes and perspectives about what's going on in the world of stocks and ETFs. The goal here is to give you some nuggets of information which will hopefully let you help you uh, make more informed and educated and ultimately more successful investment decisions. My name is Amin Reina and I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And what I do as an investment coach is I try to help people who want to become more financially independent. The problem that a lot of people have in their journey to financial independence is they often and especially when it comes to investing, is they often feel intimidated, frustrated, and confused by this whole investing vortex. They either uh, don't know where to start if they're brand new to investing, or they've been investing for a long period of time and are just frustrated because they're just not making any progress with their portfolios. So what I do is, as an investment coach, is I teach people, I engage with them on how to make more educated and ultimately more successful investment decisions so that they can, you know what, improve a little bit the probabilities of their chances of achieving financial independence and a financial freedom in their lives and then achieving it with confidence. So today is another uh, edition of Decision Day where I essentially I walk through my most recent investment decisions. And today is actually part three of a series of podcasts that I've done, um, walking through all the investment decisions that I made over this past summer. Uh, the first two parts, part one was looking at my decisions that I made in June, and part two was decisions that I made in July. And today I'm going to walk you through, share with you uh, some of the decisions that I made in uh, August. Um, for those of you who are regular listeners to my podcast or follow my blog on my website, sageinvestors.ca, you'll know that I like to, it's really important for me to be very transparent with, with people that I work with and with people, all over, everybody out there, in terms of how I go about making investment decisions. Because I really feel strongly as somebody who teaches people how to make investment decisions, as someone who teaches people how to analyze and make decisions on buying and selling stocks and ETFs, it's one thing for me to teach this stuff it's another thing for me to demonstrate it. It's another thing for me to walk the talk. And so I really, it's something I really feel important that I, I feel I should continuously share the thought processes that I you know, teach people and show how I am applying them personally to my own personal investing decisions. So today, uh, as I said, I'm gonna walk through my decisions that I'd made in August. And August was absolutely ridiculous. It was an insane month. And just to give you some context about the time we were in, we started August really with the whole hullabaloo about interest rates. Um, the Federal Reserve, just literally the last week of July, came out there and said uh, they were going to lower it. They lowered interest rates, um, but the messaging came out that uh, from the chairman uh, Jerome Powell that you know we just lowered interest rates, but and this might be the only time we'll be doing that. The market was anticipating that this was just going to be the starting point of a series of, of interest rate cuts. And the messaging that came out of the Fed was that, you know what, this might be a one-time deal. And the markets kind of really had a hard time trying to figure out what was going on with that. If that wasn't enough, then the Mad King decided to insert himself into the conversation. And uh, in early August, 
drop the bombshell, literally drop the bombshell of uh, saying, you know what, I'm going to be putting tariffs on all of the Chinese imports. Um, and that kind of rattled everybody. And then, but that wasn't enough because then China literally the next moment said, you know what, they're, we're going we're gonna to put a whole bunch of tariffs on a bunch of American stuff. And then they started to lower the yuan. It crashed, uh, it had crossed the uh, psychological 7.0 um, line in the sand and as a result of all this stuff that was going on the market just basically threw up and uh, it just threw up and it just like everybody just kind of freaked out about the whole thing um, but then if that wasn't enough then after the market like crapped out in early August the, uh, the Mad King comes back in and walked basically walked everything back and said you know what we might hold off on the tariffs because it might impact the Christmas shopping season, which was basically an admission by the Mad King that, you know, the whole point of this trade war thing was that, you know, the U.S. is not going to be impacted by any of this and the U.S. consumers were not going to be paying more prices, higher prices because of this trade war. Basically, he basically admitted that that's the case and he blinked. And so, you know, a lot of observers and from my perspective, the fact that he blinked, um, pretty much put it on the table that that the US government has no clue what the hell they're doing. They're led by the man king that has no clue what endgame is and what the point of this. And so if you're in Beijing and you're the leadership in Beijing, you're looking at this and you're going, okay, well, I have no incentive now to do a deal with, with, with the US. Uh, I'm happy to wait it out. It might be a little bit painful for us, but uh, let's wait it out. And so that's going to put more pressure on stock prices because... If these tariffs do go into effect, that's it's basically an increase in prices. It's inflationary. Goods and services are going to be more expensive. Um, this is not good for profits. This is not good for stock prices over the medium to long term. So that was going on in August. So if that all of that wasn't enough, the yield curve inverted. The two-year, ten-year U.S. yield curve inverted, and then. Everybody's like, oh my God, yield curve inversion, which historically has meant that a recession is in the offing. No idea when exactly it's going to happen, but usually when the yield curves have historically inverted, that has been a predictor, a foreshadow, has, been a for, has foreshadowed um, economic slowdown. And so all of this stuff led to the Dow Jones, uh, I think one day went down 800 points. I think it was like the fourth worst drop in the Dow Jones in history. Uh, and even in early August, the Dow Jones Industrial was down, I think, the first six sessions in August. In, in August. So with that context in mind, I made some investment decisions, <laughs> which is like crazy, but, you know, the, the, which is interesting because the, the fact of the matter is with, when you have this kind of chaos and this kind of uncertainty out there, uh, out there, it's it, the natural instinct is is to freeze, is to not do anything, and for me, when I saw that uneasiness, to me it was almost the back of my mind was saying, I need to start looking at potential. I need to go through my watch list. I need to review my portfolios and look at the companies and stocks and ETFs that I own and see maybe I need to buy more, maybe I need to sell. I need to revisit and retool and recalibrate if I need to. 
And at the same time, I need to be looking for other opportunities because this may be an opportunity where I may be able to pick up some additional companies that I've had on my watch list and pick them up at a cheaper price. Because my long-term, my investment horizon is not days, it's months, it's years. So what I was doing a lot in August was I was just going through my watch list and uh, all of a sudden there was quite a few companies that started to look really interesting. And uh, despite all the chaos that was going on in the market, I actually made some decision to buy some stocks. I also made some decisions to sell some stocks that I had. I decided to bank some profits and some positions that I had. So let me walk you through, I wanna walk you through the decisions that I had made. Um, first of all, one of the decisions I made was I decided to sell my shares in the Vanguard um, Consumer Staples ETF. Um, this is a ticker symbol uh, VDC. I sold it for a 19.5% gain when you back out all net of all the foreign exchange mumbo jumbos and nonsense that gets in the way. Um, the one thing you can take comfort is when the markets are crazy, investors tend to gravitate to stability and consumer staples is uh, considered would be essentially a defensive oriented stock. And, uh, um, you know, essentially this ETF owns a basket of consumer staple stocks, stocks of companies that sell products and services that we need on a day to day basis that we're always going to need. Um, this is a stock, this is a sector that I've, I've uh, that has been kind of lagging over the last few years, but, uh, and I essentially bought it because of the anticipation that if, when the markets and the economies starts to slow down, that these are the stocks that are going to kind of benefit from it. And so quietly, as much as the market's been kind of roaring, this sector has been kind of lagging, but sure enough, it's just been trucking away and churning away and it recently in August, it was, I was up over 20% on the stock or, or pretty close to the 20% um, on the stock. So, and for regular listeners of my podcast and my blog will know that one of the things I have, it's, I, I always say that's critical, is having a playbook where you can execute your strategy and execute your investing ideology. And so part of my playbook is when stocks that I own cross the 20% threshold, I either sell them or I evaluate them to see if there's potential more upside to them. So I made a decision with all the volatility out there and the fact that I was up over 20%, near 20% on it, I thought it would be a good jumping off point. And, uh, um, and part of the reason also is I was starting to look at the consumer discretionary stocks, which are now, which were at the time getting, were pulling back. And I thought maybe this might be a good opportunity to rotate out of the staples sector and into the discretionary sector, which is not getting a lot, which wasn't getting a lot of love. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking, especially if the markets continue to be kind of really nervous and really flip-flopping. And so that's what I did. And so to me, this my move here with the consumer staples is a classic example of, of going against consensus. I bought, these, I bought this ETF when um, the consensus around staples, consumer staple stocks was pretty negative. And I'm selling it now into where they're now getting a lot of popularity and becoming a lot more momentum. And that's kind of the nature of investing is sometimes you have to kind of go against the consensus. You can't follow the conventional thinking a lot of times because that's where you will, by going against the consensus, which is really hard and because we have to train our minds to think like this, um, if you can have that ability to challenge the conventional thinking, 
that's where your potential bigger opportunities for bigger payoffs are down the road. Uh, having that ability to zig when everybody else zags. So that was my decision on the, the VDC. The next decision I made is I also decided to sell all my gold position. Um, and I, my gold position, I used an ETF, uh, the iShares Gold Bullion Unhedged ETF, ticker symbol CGL.C. Um, for those of you who've been following, I guess following what I've been doing, um, um, the reason why I bought the gold position was really to hedge some of the currency exposure um, by whole, uh, that in terms of U.S. dollar currency exposure. Um, a lot of the assets I have in my portfolio are in U.S. dollars. And so the thinking that I had was that if interest rates were, are going to fall in the future, then the U.S. dollar would fall in the future. And if the U.S. dollar would fall, then the value of the, of the um, U.S. dollar assets that I had in my portfolio in Canadian dollar terms would fall also. So I thought to hedge that potential risk, um, if that were to play out, I thought a way I could hedge it would be, or partially hedge it, was to own gold stocks. Because the logic being, the Canadian, if the U.S. dollar were to were to fall as a result of lower interest rates, that tends to have a positive inverse correlation to commodity kind of um, materials like gold. In other words, gold. I would expect gold to go up, and so that's kind of what happened. But the interesting thing, though, is the U.S. dollar, despite the interest rate cuts and everything, have been going. Um, have been going up. The U.S. dollar has continued to remain strong. That being said, gold prices have been going up. And I think a lot of, because of all the trade uncertainty, a lot of the trade trash talking, um, a lot of the indecisions that are out there and uncertainties that are out there have put upward pressure on gold prices. And so at one point, I was up almost 15% on my gold position. Um, so I thought, you know what? Uh, gold's kind of got a bit of a buzz right now at the time. And I thought, you know, I was up 15% on, on the position uh, overall. And I thought it'd be just a good opportunity to bank the profit. And uh, even though my intention was to really use it to hedge some of my currency exposure, the fact that the US dollar continued to remain really strong meant that my gold, my US dollar assets are still not losing value. So I thought, you know what? My US dollar based assets are going up. My goal position is going up. Maybe I should take some profit right now. Um, and maybe I'll revisit going back into gold down the road if the U.S. dollar were to start falling uh, meaningfully. So if the U.S. were to continue to cut interest rates, um, at some point, I think the U.S. dollar is going to tank. I think it's overpriced. And, but I, don't, I have no idea when that's going to happen because I, I can't predict the future. I have no clue what's going to happen in the future. At some point, it will. And if it does, then maybe I'll come back in and buy some more gold. So that was my decision to buy shares in um, to cut my uh, gold exposure, basically selling at high. Again, classic buy low, sell high. Um, I bought some more shares of Canadian Natural Resources, ticker symbol CNQ. Um, the stock had been falling. It was down near the $30 range. Um, my cost base was about $33. Um, so I was down about 10% on the position. And I'm thinking... Um, my logic at the time was that if interest rates were to fall and currencies continue to get devalued, and if there really is an ongoing currency war that emerges, then hard assets, I think, are going to gain in value. And so I thought potential is there for oil prices to go up in the future 
forget about the supply demand equation. The inverse relationship between currencies and hard assets is there. And so I thought holding hard assets is still an important thing. And I thought I, with oil prices kind of tracking backward, they went down to almost the $50, $50 range. Um, I decided to buy some more shares of CNQ and lower my cost base a little bit further. So um, I decided to use all that downturn in, the, in oil prices and in oil stocks to buy more shares in CNQ. And so that's that one. Um, then I made a couple of decisions to buy new, to create new positions. I bought, um, I'm trying to roll through my list. The first one I uh, added to my portfolio, stock that I added to my portfolio was Under Armour, ticker symbol UAA. Now, this is a stock that had been falling uh, quite dramatically. The stock was trading at around $27 uh, in early August. Their earnings report came out. It was pretty bad. It was actually pretty good, but the market hated it, and the stock went down to almost $18 a share. The stock went down like 25%. And so the market was just, uh, um, it just did not like it. And it kind of, it ha I've had that company on my watch list. And uh, I ended up buying it. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because actually I've done a, a separate podcast on this and a separate video on Under Armour, mind map video on Under Armour, where I kind of walk through my decision making. But I'll just get you to the, to the gist of it. I thought this is a company that's still generating is really strong brand, is a really strong brand name globally. Um, the company's making tons of, tons of money. It's really appealing to a, to the burgeoning uh, millennial demographic, solid balance sheet, but the company has done a couple of missteps, basically because it's kind of oversaturated the brand in the sense that they've been discounting the product. There's, been, there, there, there's too much product out in the marketplace at too lower a price point, and I think the company has sort of realized that they've been diluting the brand a bit. And so the company, from what I've been re reading, has been making conscious efforts to reduce its inventory, reduce the number of SKUs that they have out there, and try to reintroduce people to buying their goods at a higher price point. In other words, trying to bring more exclusivity to the, to the brand, to their products, and kind of aligning itself a little bit more with, with Nike in terms, of, uh, in terms of that kind of luxury brand kind of mindset. So I took those combinations of uh, the fact that it's strategically trying to do, turn around the company um, the fact that the company is, despite this you know, perceived weakness, the company is still creating positive economic profit. And I think it's a company that's also suffering from a lot of geographic bias because most of the analysts have been crapping on the stock because their American, North American sales have been flat. But if you look at their global sales, they've actually been surging and they're extremely popular everywhere around the world. Like maybe not in North America, maybe because they've oversaturated the product. So I think the steps of kind of reducing their SKUs combined with, I think, the brand popularity is, I thought, the fact that the stock is now 25% cheaper than it was a month ago, um, led me to say, you know what, I think I wanna start building a position on it. The other story I wanna give you, which is an anecdotal kind of uh, explanation, is uh, popularity. A year ago, my nephew, um, 
we were talking, I was talking with my nephew, who's about 11 years old, at the time was 10 years old. He was telling, you know, we were talking about his birthday and getting him something for his birthday. And I said, do you want to get something, you want something from like Under Armour? And he goes, no, nah, I won't even cut, I'm going to be caught dead wearing Under Armour. It's solely uncool. This year, I asked the same question. He, he came to me and says, yeah, I really like like an Under Armour shirt or an Under Armour sweater or something like that. And I'm like, what? Last year you told me this was like totally the most uncool thing. No, 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 no. it's really a big ding. The kids really love, are all into Under Armour now. And I was like, really? That's interesting. So that, I think that little anecdotal like interface kind of got me to think, okay, maybe I need to take a look at this company. And the fact that the stock dropped like 25%, I've got, hmm, maybe there is, this is a bit of a turnaround play and maybe there's some potential upside with this stock. Forget about, you know, trade wars be damned. I'm looking at maybe uh, from a real social uh, demand kind of proposition that maybe there's an opportunity here for, for the stock. So that led me to my, my, share, my decision to buy some shares in Under Armour. So as I said, if you go on my website, I actually have a separate podcast and a separate video on my analysis of Under Armour. You can check that out. Finally, the last company, the other company that I added uh, to my portfolio was Square, ticker symbol SQ. Um, same principle, actually. I'm not going to get too into depth on it because I actually have another video and another podcast episode that I dedicate to analyzing Square, so I'll kind of wean you into that one. But I just want to share with you that um, same principles really with Under Armour. The stock was trading at around 90 bucks, and it dropped to about 60 bucks. And again, it kind of got me into looking at this whole their whole business model, the whole payment online payment um, model. And I found a lot of really interesting things about the company. Uh, on the surface, the company was generating returns on capital of about four percent. It wasn't. It's not generating positive economic profit, but the strategic moves that the company has taken in terms of expanding their ecosystem beyond just the you know. Uh, plug the adapter in your phone and accept credit card payments. They're 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 trying to expand their ecosystem, and I think there's potential some interesting opportunities for this company to be kind of a big player in some of these consumer um, online payment kind of services, and uh, that kind of got me all interested in it. And uh, so I bought into it, but it's a very speculative play, and it's, it was a speculative decision. And uh, so I bought a little bit into it, knowing for the fact that this is probably going to be a very volatile stock. But at the same time, I'm looking at there's potentially at least a 20 to 25% payout that could happen if, things, if they were to implement their strategy and to execute it effectively. So um, the stock got killed because they reported quote-unquote bad earnings. But when you look at some of their metrics in terms of some of their product lines, it's actually pretty good. Um, and I think the other thing that got me into it was the fact that they made a recent decision to sell their Caviar uh, online food delivery website uh, app. Um, they sold it for $400 million. And when you looked at it, it was a really, ha it was, they were burning a lot of cash because of that. And I think that has impacted their returns on invested capital negatively. And so I'm thinking now that they've kind of got that off their books and banked $400 million on top of it, that... This company now could potentially become a little bit more cash flow positive, which I think could ultimately feed into a, a more higher share price. Um, other thing also that got me into it was that it's very much right now a North American centric company. So all the issues that are going on with the trade wars and the, all the garbage that's happening right now, 
it really doesn't impact the company that much. They're kind of immune from a lot of that. So that was another factor that I think that got me interested in, in getting into the, into, the, into the stock. So as I said, you can check out the podcast that I've done for this and the video that I've done for this. I go into a little bit more of a dive into a deeper dive into Square. Um, but I'm just sharing it with you. It's a stock that I, despite all the chaos that's out there, um, I've been, um, I decided to uh, kind of nibble away and buy some um, more shares. Uh, the key takeaway I want to share with you here is, you know, these decisions that I made this month in the context of all the chaos that was going, that's been going on out there really to me reinforces the importance of having a playbook of having a strategy on how you make investment decisions. Because when you get into these really crazy times where the markets are just going crazy and rolling over type thing, the last thing you need to be doing right now is figuring out, okay, now what do I do? You need to have your playbook, having a playbook that maps out how you are going to behave and how you're going to execute your investment strategy under various market conditions takes out the emotion because that's the one thing that happens during a crazy market turnover is emotions kind of will drive your decision making when instead of practicality and having a playbook to me during these types of stress moments has just been an invaluable thing to happen in terms of knowing how I should go about making decisions, in terms of reinforcing what my investing ideology is and how I want to make investment decisions, and then having my exit strategies mapped out of how I want to get out of stocks and ETFs that I own when they cross certain thresholds. Having that stuff on paper or on a phone or whatever, or in a cloud, mapped out and having that ability to use that as a reference, as an anchor for me, has been a critical component in how I make investment decisions now. And it's something that I teach people. It's really important to have a playbook. And so if uh, um, that's one of my probably big takeaways. As I said, I'm an as, a, as an investment coach, I help people build these tools that they can use to help make better investment decisions. So if you're interested, you know, my suggestion, go out and develop your own playbook. And if you don't want to develop your own playbook and don't know where to start, I'm more than happy to help you out. You can check out the stuff that I have on my website, the services that I have, uh, my coaching services, and I, I work with people to develop their investing playbook so that they can deal with making decisions just like the type of decisions I've had to face that I'm sharing with you over the last few months this past summer. So... That's all I got for you. If you have any questions, you can give me a shout through my website, sageinvestors.ca. If you're interested in any of my online investing courses, as I said, I teach courses on investing in stocks and ETFs, uh, both online, and I also am now starting to do live classroom, uh, online live classroom um, sessions of my courses. So if you're interested, you can check my schedule out on my website, sageinvestors.ca. If you're interested in any of my other podcasts, as I said, um, all my podcasts are available on my website as well as on Apple Podcasts. So feel free to go there and download and subscribe. Um, you can find me if you want to get a hold of me, ask me some questions around anything um, about my services, my coaching services, and my courses, or stuff that I've been talking to you with you about today, sharing with you today. Feel free to drop me a line through my website. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on there all the time, tweeting my takes, other people's takes about what's going on in the markets. My handle is at Sage Investors. Uh, you can find me on my Facebook page. Uh, just do a search for Sage Investors. And uh, more than happy to hear from you. 
So that's all I got for you this week. This has been another edition of Stock Talk. My name is Amon Reyna. I'm an investment coach of Sage Investors, and we'll catch you again another time. Take care. Bye-bye.